watch this man. He has perhaps the most unorthodox style and technique that you have seen, but my is it effective, and my is this man now brimming with confidence and self-belief in that style. We thought we'd introduce you to Bodie Miller. Arms are behind him. That's that typical Bodie technique. Bodie's exciting to watch because you never know whether he's going to make it. It is Miller. Look at this. A high line. Now into his tuck. As always, no! Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 189 of the Ski Podcast. This is a special episode. Uh, I've been lucky enough to interview lots of famous athletes from the world of snow sports before, but Bodie Miller is a legend. In this interview, we discuss uh, everything from his origins, his rise to the US team, his unconventional approach to uh, travel. He lived in an RV for a long time and to training. The highs of his career, which include World Cup wins and Olympic medals and the lows. Finally, we discuss in detail his new brand, Peak Skis. Bodie's clearly brought all of his experience to this particular range, and it was a real pleasure to speak with him. Bodie Miller is one of the world's best ski racers of all time. I found it fascinating talking to him, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to our conversation too. Well, I'm very excited to be joined today by Bodie Miller. Um, described in various places as well the most successful male alpine uh, ski racer of all time a word uh, i've come across uh, before the winningest uh, alpine racer hi Bodie. great to have you on the podcast yeah thank you for having me can i ask you uh, whereabouts are you just now we're in Schladming right now. I'm um, just getting ready to pack up and head over to Solden today. Great. Okay. And that's for the first World Cup event uh, of the season. Yeah. Yep. We have a bunch of uh, press events and then we'll catch the World Cup on Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Well, the reason we're talking, obviously, is uh, the press events you mentioned for uh, Peak Skis. And we're going to come on to those. These are new skis that you've uh, developed uh, yourself. Uh, I, I introduced it at the beginning there as the winningest uh, American Alpine ski racer of all time. Should probably mention for the uh, listener, if they're not so informed, that you are an Olympic and World Championship uh, gold medalist, two-time overall World Cup uh, champion, and one of only five men to have won World Cup events in five disciplines, uh, along with uh, names like Mark Girardelli, Permin Zabrigan, who I've been lucky enough to interview before, Chetel uh, Andre, Armot, and Gunter Marder. Uh, so... What a background you uh, bring to this. It, I did actually uh, have a chat with a couple of our um, ski racers from the UK uh, side of things, Graham Bell and Chemi Alcott, who uh, have presented Ski Sunday for many years. I asked them what they uh, thought of you. Uh, Graham said to me, he's a free thinker and a loose cannon. And Chemi said, Bodhi is unique. He's a, an icon because he doesn't fit uh, any mold. And I think... Hopefully, we'll find out over the course of this podcast why that's true and how that brings uh, itself into your new skis, peak skis, uh, as well. I wondered, though, Bodie, if I could just take you back to uh, your origins. You're from New Hampshire, uh, it, um, that's right, and you, you were first skiing on Cannon Mountain ski area. What's that like? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a typical small East Coast uh, ski resort, so pretty pretty steep. You know, not not a lot of vertical. Um, it's about 2,200 vertical from top to bottom. Um, so, you know, on the smaller side, but really steep and windy trails all down in in the uh, in the trees. You know, I mean, there's it's not above tree line anywhere. So you have really defined ski trails all over, and um, you know, a lot of lot of locals and kind of friendly faces. For those of us um, who got to ski a lot, it's you know every person who works on the mountain, which is a pretty unique but great situation for me as a young kid because I could I could feel safe there. I mean, I don't know that I would have felt safe anywhere or unsafe anywhere, but my my mom and family felt safe just dropping me off and letting me kind of enjoy the mountain all day. So it was a great opportunity for me when I was young. 
Yeah, and just to discover it uh, for yourself, because I would say that your uh, your upbringing would be unconventional by most people's uh, standards. You're living in a, a log cabin with no electricity or uh, indoor plumbing. I guess what these days people would call as being off-grid. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so to get to uh, Cannon Mountain or to get to school, I read somewhere that you had to uh, take a, a six-mile snowmobile uh, uh, trek and then uh, hitchhike to school about 18 miles. Is that right? Well, that was when I was at Carabasset Valley uh, Academy in Maine uh, my freshman year and the winter of my um, sophomore year. And then in the spring of my sophomore year, I got to move in into the actual school and uh, that was a lot easier. But yeah, that was a pretty, pretty unique and um, demanding freshman year i bet it was that's a that's a lot of traveling you mentioned the caravasset racing academy so you'd you'd been like spotted at cannon mountain and you know asked to join that is that how that worked uh no i don't think i was spotted by anybody what my mom was actually had been best friends when she was 13 or 13 14 15 with what turned out to be the headmaster's wife at caravasset valley and we were looking uh, potentially at academies, but there, we just, we didn't have any money, uh, to pay for it. And, um, I didn't really have the results per se to get much of a scholarship. So, um, that one worked out because of the family connection. And they said, well, if he's willing to live as a day student with this other day student who could therefore get a, a little bit more financial aid off of his, his tuition, um, so I lived same as I grew up, really, back to kind of off the grid. You had to get to his house via snowmobile, and um, they had an outhouse. It was, you know, a unique thing that I don't think any other kids would have said okay because it would have just been such a departure from their, their norm. But for me, it was, you know, it was back to my norm. So even though it was really challenging and to try to, you know, I was only 15 years old, uh, I was snowmobiling through Maine in the dark, you know, because it's dark there. You're, you're leaving at, you know, before five in the morning to start that snowmobile ride. And it's pretty cold in Maine and um, a lot of windy trails through the woods and across the river um, to then hitchhike up with workers or uh, employees up, up the, you know, from Kingfield, which the trip from Kingfield up to CVA is no, no joke. So it was, uh, it was a unique kind of opportunity that kind of only fit me call it that that's a, a pretty um i mean evidently you're pretty uh, dedicated um i kind of read that uh, you know maybe in that uh, uh time some of your coaches found it uh, kind of challenging to coach you and maybe even you were considering being a snowboarder and i don't know if this is true but i read here that you cut a snowboard in half and put bindings uh, on it to try and get a better cut is that right? Well, it was it was because I was trying to. Um, it wasn't that freshman year. That that was um, the end of the next year. Is when I um, no, I get, I get no. The first year they saw me snowboard because I'd grown up snowboarding as well as skiing. So it was, I think it was my freshman year, uh, but it could have been my sophomore year, where they um, and I snowboarded and I was I was right in there. Uh, with some of the best snowboarders in the country, which at that time we had a really strong snowboard program at, at Carabasset. And uh, they they said that I could come back to, to the school on a full scholarship if I switched to snowboarding. Um, but I, I was kind of going to be doing the same thing as I had been the year before if I wanted to keep racing. And that was a pretty, that was a tough tough decision I guess in a way just because there was an easy road um and there was a hard road and but the hard road was what I wanted to do and what I felt like was the right thing so yeah I was more forced I was I was being pushed into snowboarding and I I, I didn't end up ultimately doing that but then I, I did cut a snowboard in half that next year and and mounted ski bindings on it to try to um explore and explain what side cut was because I could carve really pretty solid turns on a snowboard and I could see that it was because of the side cut. And at that time, no one was, was, you know, there was no side cut on skis really or nothing to speak of. So, um, that was the beginning of the K24, which ultimately was the cause of me making, making the U S ski team. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I think that's really interesting because, you know, evidently, you know, that's an early sign of your attention to, to detail and wanting to innovate and try different things. And the idea that, you know, skis didn't really have a side cut might be hard to believe for uh, people who have only come to skiing uh, recently. But you said that led to you uh, joining the team. You you, you were racing a pro, I think, you know, in your teens, for sure, 18, Nagano Winter Olympics at 20. I noticed uh, when I was quite having a, a look through your history that you picked up your first podium over here in Europe in, uh, in Val d'Isere. You, you remember that one? Is that a lucky resort for you? I've done okay there. I, I also won... I won my first giant slalom there as well. It was more it's just early in the season. <laughs> so, you know, it, it looks lucky because it's the one of the first opportunities you get. And I tended to make um, pretty good progress over the summer. You know, my training was, was um, you know, relatively focused. I, I did well in Solden, obviously won, won a few times in Solden, which is the opening World Cup of the season. Um, you know, I, I won in Lake Louise. I won a lot in Beaver Creek. Those are all really early season races. Um, that was that was always a strength of mine. And then usually because I liked racing all the all the different events, I'd go through a period in in December, January. Um, it was really challenging because you just get where you're racing all the time. There's no training. Things get a little bit off track sometimes, and it's hard to correct. That's I would say one of the biggest challenges of, of being a four event, five event skier is that you just don't have the time to, to sort through things and, and stay focused on your one strong event. <laughs> it's more of an indicator of my preparation as to why I did well in, in those early season races, just because I could prepare well over the summer. I had the chance to really kind of, where I wasn't distracted by racing all the time, I could really get things dialed in and then be coming to the season ready to go. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, you talk about racing all four uh, disciplines there, because I think initially you were mainly racing slalom and then, you know, you started doing downhill. So by the time you got to uh, Salt Lake in 2002, won uh, uh, two silver uh, medals and you've been racing uh, downhill, uh, won one of those silver medals in the uh, com combined. But I think um, when people you know think of, uh, of Bodie Miller and the type of athlete that you represent perhaps part of that legend started in the in the slalom at, at salt lake because you were in a pretty good position there but you weren't gonna uh, uh settle back you really wanted to uh, to go for it and uh, maybe just missed out there i saw a, a quote where you said um well you know it's the olympics if i backed off and come in in fifth or sixth place i would have been really disappointed you were going for the win that really is your philosophy right yeah i think i think that's that's a lot of people's philosophy. I think what was maybe a little bit more, um, you know, specific to my, my approach was that even if, I mean, in that case, I was 2.4 seconds behind Amat and about the same behind Benjamin Reich and uh, Las issues, a few other uh, Akala, Paul Akala, um, a bunch of guys that are, had, had had success in Slalom too. And, at that point, I really hadn't, I, I had started skiing fast slalom that year, but giant slalom was, was what I first, you know, my first World Cup where I qualified into the Olympics in 98. And I'd had more success in giant slalom at that time uh, with some, some, some fast slalom here and there, but definitely, um, yeah, they were, it was erratic. My slalom, I could make mistakes pretty easily. It's so quick and so precise. And I was still kind of growing into it at that point. But um, I think what was unique was that even with those kind of deficits, I, I was able to not, not go so crazy that I just crashed, which would have been easy to do. Um, but I was able to stay pretty, pretty focused, even with big deficits and, and put down, um, you know, good skiing. And that was, you know, I think a lot of guys, if they were that far behind, it just gets in their head a bit too much. They don't know exactly what it takes to to make up that kind of time on on some of the top slalom skiers in the world. And I think I was maybe more aware of that. But I think uh, you know uh, your uh, autobiography. I think the title is uh, you know go fast, be good, uh, have fun. You're definitely interested in you know all of those different elements. And uh, you said before you know we should tell our kids to have fun, not get hell bent on winning or or losing. You're always looking to ski in a way that's exciting. Is that's part of your philosophy, right? Yeah, and I think you know exciting for myself. That's the key part. There's a lot of people 
exciting for someone else might just be a, a win, right? I mean, that's typically the way it is, but we've seen it, you know, I've seen it a lot in World Cup where sometimes when somebody skis conservatively in the, the courses, it happened in 2009 at World Championships in Val d'Isere, actually. I failed to medal, and, uh, but I was winning the training runs and I was, I was winning the Super G, I was winning the combined by two and a half seconds or three seconds or something. And, and I crashed in all the events, but the guys who ended up ultimately winning skied really uh, uninspiring in a way, uh, really conservative. The conditions were really tough. Like you can't blame them because the conditions were really tough. And if you did try to ski hard, there was a high likelihood that you crashed. You know, as people were losing skis in Super G, which is not that common without crashing, just hitting holes and big bumps and losing skis. And you know, that was that was more personal for me. I needed to ski in a way that that I was excited about. And we mentioned, or I mentioned before, that you know you've had like let's say an unconventional uh, approach. You know, certainly your attitude to racing maybe a bit different. But I was really interested. Uh, to ask you about uh, living in uh, the RV, which you did, uh, I think, uh, on the circuit for a lot of the time. I've I've spent quite a lot of time traveling in a in a motorhome, as we call them uh, over here. And and in fact, I recently uh, interviewed uh, Mia Brooks, who's a British snowboarder, uh, quite young, but uh, her parents took her out in a motorhome. They lived in in Lax all through the uh, winter. Probably though a bit different from the uh, the motorhomes or the RVs uh, you were in. I'm guessing they were kind of pretty big, pretty well equipped. Uh, it depended. I, I had I had four or five different motorhomes over the time that I was on tour, and I started off in a Concorde, um, which was relatively small and uh, really well made. They were, it was a great great vehicle, especially for the winter, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the big challenges that Americans face, Canadians as well, is that we're, we're, there are away games, you know, if you're looking at other sports, it's, it's all away games pretty much. Um, and it's tiring, you know, it's just exhausting. I think it's hard to maintain the mental, uh, a successful mental approach when you're never at home, you're never eating, you know, your, your comfort foods or the food that you're used to. And, uh, seeing family and friends and the Europeans really have have a huge advantage in that area and that they go home after races and um, get to relax and so I, I felt like if I could I needed to try to take steps that would would make that a little bit less of a negative impact on me and that's that's where the motorhome came in yeah and you get to stay in the same place sleep in the same bed every night rather than moving from one hotel to the next you you mentioned uh the, the concord that you had but i think you know that um i read somewhere that one of the vehicles you had was like nine meters long now the one we that, that i have had and uh drove was seven meters and that felt pretty long but uh it wasn't you driving it you had a a, a pal of yours from home yeah, I had a, a different different friends. Mostly, I had a, a childhood friend driving, and then towards the end, a different coach drove the the Prevost, which was yeah, it was 40, 42 feet. That was a that was the longest we got at the very end. But yeah, like I said, I, I had several different ones. I had uh, fifth wheels that I shipped over from Europe when I went independent with my own team because I needed to house house my coaches and and serviceman and stuff like that. So it was. Uh, yeah, I was always playing with the ideas of how to make it better for everybody. And is that more, was it one of those motorhomes where it kind of expands out sideways as well to just give you that extra space? Yeah, the fifth wheels were the most extreme in that case. They had several pop-outs. The actual, the Prevost was a was one that a Canadian guy had built. Um, and a Prevost is, you know, it was a really old, old uh, bus, really converted uh, bus. But he had put a pop out in that. It was relatively small pop out. It was just for uh, the couch, basically in the living room. But it definitely, you know, if you're into motorhomes, it makes a huge difference when you expand uh, laterally in those things. But that was a that was an interesting one. Definitely not not ideal for driving around the small mountain roads in in Europe in the winter. But we made it work. Yeah, I can imagine that. Like, in my experience, driving in and out of you know campsites and narrow turnings can always be a bit of a challenge when you're in a long vehicle. But uh, I guess you probably had a few adventures there. Uh, you mentioned how you know typically you started the seasons you know very well uh, because your pre-season training had been uh, you know strong. 
uh, I was reading about the type of training uh, that you've done, which may be a bit different from uh, from other people, not necessarily the sort of standard tests that the US team were uh, kind of uh, uh, asking people to do. I, I read something about a, a 700 pound squat machine that your uncle had built for you. I wasn't naturally built to, to be a ski racer. I, you know, maybe, maybe I could have been a slalom skier, but even giant slalom, the demands, physical demands were were a bit outside what my body was was really designed for. So I had to work pretty hard to build the physical attributes to to allow me to be successful. And that was a long process and nothing in that space happens happens quickly. So um yeah, the this the eccentric machine, it wasn't you know seven hundred pounds specifically. It just you could load it up as much as you wanted and it would essentially spot you. It would lift the weight up for you and uh and then you could you could hold the weight as free weight on the way down and that was i think a, a critical piece i think in hindsight obviously there was other other approaches that we could have taken but things that weren't invented yet or weren't understood yet but that was a huge part of of my early success in my career was being able to to safely and effectively load that much weight on my body yeah another um training part of your training regime i read about that sounds great was running through uh streams just trying to you know jump from stone to stone and picking the right the right path and that's encouraging you know concentration and balance and decision making all of these things at the same time yeah we did i did that a lot growing up when i was young and then we also did it um quite a bit up at carabasa valley uh we lived right on a small small creek and um we'd do interval training up and down that. And that was definitely uh, a, a unique challenge, like you said, kind of dynamic. It, it covers a lot of different stuff that, that really, I think, helped. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, that this type of training was slightly different from everything else. I mean, with the US team, that they had some standard tests? Maybe you felt that they weren't necessarily, the, you know, measuring the right things? Yeah, I think their their training methodology wasn't, you know, it wasn't that it was bad. It just wasn't directly correlating to ski racing and ski racing results. I think they were they were taking bits and pieces from all different sports, uh, dry land programs and training programs. So that makes sense, right? We didn't have a, a super developed proven methodology of how to get our racers ready to win World Cups. I mean, we weren't winning World Cups. So they just thought we'll get them real strong. And, and it, it may, I mean, there was a logic behind it. It's not to criticize that. It's just, it wasn't correlating to results. And when I started to do well in World Cup, you could see that I was a bit different than the other guys, the, the way that I trained, but certainly my, my physical attributes were, were also different. I didn't do well in our, in our physical testing. And yet then I was able to go out and win World Cup. So that was, I think, where that comes from is just, you know, I was more of a logical person and I said, look, if, if I'm able to do these, these things in training and, and win races, then, but I do poorly on our physical evaluation sort of criteria, then, you know, maybe it's time to take a look at that. So they were, it wasn't that they were resistant to it. I just think there wasn't a template and the stuff that I was doing was, was pretty unique. So it was hard for them to get their heads wrapped around how to replicate what I was doing. And it must be also a different challenge. There are not very few uh, athletes, alpine racers, who are taking on all four disciplines. You've got to balance that demand for strength uh, that you'd need for downhill with uh, maybe a bit more flexibility and, and balance that you need for, uh, for slalom, for example. It wasn't even super specific at that time. I mean, I, I covered, like you said, the you know running on, on rocks in the trees and agility, single leg, lots of different single leg agility things to make sure that you could spot if there was imbalances laterally, uh, you know, skiing, you're facing straight down the hill. So if you had imbalances side to side uh, with a weaker leg or a less precise leg or, or anything really throughout your whole body, it, it would show up typically in a, in a race. So for me, I was starting um, with the things that were the most obvious and I'd, I'd work on those. I needed, I needed more muscular endurance and anaerobic ability to make it successfully to the finish line. That was kind of the first thing. And then I needed specific power for low positions and downhill super G, but even giant slalom and slalom, you, 
you still find yourself in really low low positions sometimes with your knees really bent and that with long legs and I was pretty skinny that was that was clear that that was a weakness of mine and anyone who skis can tell you that balance is really instrumental to not crashing right you just you need to have that and when you're when you're racing it's more extreme even just because you're so dictated as to where you go and how you how you make it around the gate so I just took it kind of logically of what the most obvious things were first and then as I got more physically developed and stronger and you know it, it became obvious that I had to move you know continue to work on the most important obvious things but I could move down to more sport specific or event specific elements. I think uh, evidently from the physical side of things, there's a lot of challenges there and you need to have to be in peak condition. But one of the things that uh, I think people understand about, you know, professional athletes at the elite level is that the mental side of things is a huge uh, part of that as well. And, you know, moving on to your third Olympics, uh, Turin in 2006. In, in the lead up to that, there was a, an interview with uh, the program 60 Minutes where I think, you know, you'd, you'd, you said during that interview, you know, you'd, you'd won the World Cup uh, the day before and then you skied the next day when you were, you know, probably still on the influence or, or wasted. And that kind of created a lot of negativity around you uh, at that time. Did that put a, a bit of extra pressure on you through those Olympics? Um, no, I mean, I think... You know, for me, it was always it was always the same. I mean, whatever the media said or fans said, you know, I don't think that necessarily has much impact. I mean, but it doesn't change the pressure. It doesn't change the expectation or it doesn't change the the reality of that moment. It's just a perception for fans or or, you know, media themselves. I think, you know, I hadn't won a race in 06. So coming I started the 0405 season really successful winning a bunch early season. And um, then I didn't win a race the whole middle of the season uh, for 20, 20 something different races. I didn't win. And then one, won a super G tied with Darren at world cup finals and um, won the overall, which was, which was what sort of set everything up. But if you look at it uh, from December, I think my last race that I won was, it was um, Sestriere which is where the Olympics were. So that was in Italy. And that was, that was in December, you know, and then I hadn't won a race except for tying for one super G at world cup finals. And then the beginning of the next season, I didn't win any races all the way up till the Olympics. So that's 50, 55, something like that races in a row without a win going into an Olympics. Anyone I think with, with knowledge of the sport would, would have, adjusted their expectations at that point but because media doesn't really care about reality they just want to sell magazines and then you know they hadn't adjusted and and so I came in there and I and I, I raced well I mean I won the combined downhill by by a second uh, on the same track as the downhill you know the day before where I was fifth you know and it's not like I was far off I was fifth and sixth I hit a big rock in the giant slalom and and a lot of guys were hitting rocks. There was a lot of wind there and there was rocks, small rocks being blown into the course. And those are just variables that we deal with all the time. But when it's, when it's an Olympics and everything's riding on that one, that one moment, it can be pretty, you know, it's a frustrating sport. It's, there's lots of sports where there's more controlled variables, right? Like swimming, <laughs> the water temperature is pretty controlled. Yeah. There's just not a, there's not a whole lot of stuff that can go, go sideways that's out of your control and in skiing it's on the other end of the spectrum where there's a huge amount of things that are out of your control and that can be tough to deal with at times but um yeah you know it's like I said it was it wasn't I think as big of a of a face plant as it as you would expect if you were just reading the media because you know the reality was that I hadn't won a race in, in 50 something world cup races which was at that time my longest streak of my career without without winning so it was you know disappointing and as I said I was winning the combined by by a couple seconds and then was disqualified in the slalom portion so it was it was closer I think also to being a successful Olympics than they portrayed in the media I think they just kind of uh they wanted that that specific story and I played right into their hands and I made plenty of mistakes on my own with the way that I spoke about it uh but you know, it's it's also it was the nature of my career that I, I would go through points where I, I wasn't winning. That was just the way it was sometimes. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I guess I am part of the media, but I know that they like a, a narrative. And, uh, you know, even back in 2006, we think about people piling on through social media uh, these days. But, you know, people were were piling on uh, at that time. So, you know, you said you, you went through a run without winning uh, in many races. Uh, but uh, the expression form is temporary, class is permanent is there for a, a reason. And, uh, you know, as time uh, passed, I know you left the, the US team for a while, you skied as an independent, but uh, you were back as world champion, World Cup champion uh, again uh, in 2008, back in the US team 2009. And by 2010, back at the Olympics representing uh, the States again and winning medals and becoming the first American to uh, win an Olympic medal in downhill, I think, since Tommy Moe uh, in 1994. Did it kind of feel like you were uh, um, giving everyone who criticised you something to think about when you were doing that? Did it make you extra determined? No, no. As I said, it's. I really. I think if you if you were ever focused on that, you probably were doing less than you ultimately could. Um, it's not a not a positive distraction in any way. I don't think the media ends up being um, that, that I've seen. I've never seen it be a positive impact on a racer. <laughs> It's, it's just a matter of how negative, how negative it is. Sometimes it's only a little bit negative. Sometimes it can be, um, you know, more significant, but no, I think it was just, uh, you know, the breaking away from the team and winning my second, uh, overall championship was, was really important, uh, running my own team, having my own coaches and, and being able to, to win an overall. I was, you know, obviously the only American to have done that since the mayor brothers on the men's side. And uh, that was that was a huge sort of focused effort there and committing my own money to it, paying for my my own way. And, um, you know, that was probably the most specifically um, result oriented season that I'd had. You know, and I had a broken ankle the whole year. I broke my ankle in Beaver Creek and raced with it broken the whole year. But that was something where we'd had the money committed and it was it was I was not willing to to take anything that, that I could have managed better, uh, for granted. So, you know, going into 2010, I was, I was ready to sort of carry that forward. Certainly the Olympics in, in North America is unique as well. You know, I knew that I knew the area and it was, it was a, an Olympics that was particularly well suited to an experienced athlete. You know, we had lots of delays. There was significant weather impacts. There was a lot of variables. You know, when I say there's lots of variables in skiing that you can't control, it's a it's a massive understatement, but there's also ways that you can adjust to those variables that are usually uh, when you're talking about races that are separated by hundreds of seconds. There's always something you can do that adjusts to those variables. So there's lots of stuff that's out of your control, but ultimately it comes back into your control and the way you deal with them. So that was an Olympics where I didn't ski really well in any of the races. I mean, I definitely skied better in 2006 but the way that i adjusted to the variables and the way everyone else adjusted to the variables there um favored me significantly and a lot of that was just my my level of experience right it was my fourth olympics and i i had a lot of knowledge that i was able to tap into that some of the younger guys who were at that time skiing much better than i was they just didn't have the experience to know how to adjust when you say those fine margins, uh, I was reading that the uh, it was the smallest difference but from gold to bronze in Olympic downhill history in that race. So such tiny margins uh, involved. And, and that was your fourth uh, uh, Winter Olympics. Fifth was uh, Sochi. Uh, you took a, a lot of time uh, to prepare for that. I think, uh, you know, there are injuries involved as well, but 2013. But um, in 2014, became the oldest uh, medalist in alpine skiing uh, history. Uh, you won bronze in the Super G. Was that that was the time to you know call call time on your on your racing career after that? You know, I think I was dealing with a pretty significant back injury um, going going into that. But the jump there in Sochi, I mean, I, I skied as well or better than I'd ever skied before in the training runs. And while I was very successful at managing all the variables that I could adjust to in in 2010. In 2014, it warmed up a lot. I mean, Sochi's a relatively southern located resort for uh, for an Olympics, a Winter Olympics. And you know, in the, in the beginning, in the training runs, I was winning those training runs by 
by huge margins in some cases and was confident going into it but the way it warmed up it was made made it really difficult to to choose the right equipment uh you kind of had to pick whether you were going to try to choose equipment that worked well on the top of the course or the bottom and um ultimately i i didn't make the right choices there um in hindsight and and didn't meddle in the downhill but pulled off a kind of a a, a mediocre run in super g a couple couple pretty big mistakes but um you know it was at the end of that the the downhill there had one jump um there was really a huge jump massive vertical distance and um you know 75 80 meters and hitting that in the training runs everybody's backs were were feeling it and mine having already gone through you know whatever it was 400 and something world cup races at that point it, it definitely uh did did some serious damage and i had to have back surgery that next year and came back and raced the world championships and i was happy with the way i was skiing still i definitely had had the speed to to win races certainly uh considering my results i really wasn't winning a lot of races at that time but i was winning a lot of training runs and still obviously had a ton of speed but um after i cut my hamstring in 2015 that's when i decided it was it was time uh, and you mentioned equipment there uh, sochi you've skied on you know a number of different brands uh, over the years i was actually reading an interview i came across you've always been into you know experimentation uh, the guardian wrote in 2006 that you're a skiing's mad scientist there couldn't possibly be anyone who's thought more about what it takes to uh, win a ski race uh, and i saw a quote from you saying you like to think things through you know look at problems so that that desire to, you know, understand how to get the best uh, out of your skis uh, has led towards you now creating your own skis, right? Yeah, we launched Peak Skis last year. It wasn't, I think it's important to recognize it wasn't just for me either. I mean, you know, I was always looking to provide value to the companies that I was sponsored by. Skiing is not a, it's not a lucrative sport the way that most other professional sports are, at least global, you know, pretty mainstream sports. Um, tend to be the athletes are compensated pretty pretty well. My wife and I were just talking about David Beckham's contract with the LA Galaxy, you know, $250 million. Well, he was pretty pretty close to the end of his career, definitely not at the top of his, his sport. And in, in the sport of skiing, you get $250 uh, for the same, the same type of thing. So I was always looking to try to provide value to these companies so that I could try to try to make a living where I wouldn't be, you know, be broke at the end of it. And I think that that's important because it allowed me to look at other people's skiing as well. When I was on head, that was one of the main things I did was build skis on the women's side, build skis for the other racers on the men's side that they would attract them to switch to head. You couldn't just pay athletes to switch to a company. They needed equipment that would allow them to be successful so you know that was the perfect time to be on a company like that with that type of goal because it broadened my awareness of what it took to build skis that other people could be successful on not just myself and i think a lot of the skis i'd built before that were ultimately really good for other racers too but it wasn't i wasn't super focused on that that was really important for where i am now with peak where i'm obviously not building these skis for for myself although I want skis that work well for me. They're built for the for the general populace. And that's, I think, really important phase of that, being able to understand, you know, through my feel what somebody else might might appreciate or would make it better for them. And yeah, we've had incredible reviews from customers and, and ski testers and gear tests all over the all over the world. So it's it's been going well so far and uh, you know you mentioned you know the skis weren't for you but i think part of the you know the key influence uh, in terms of the design of the peak skis is they have something called keyhole uh, technology and that idea came from uh, some of the skis uh, i think the gs skis that you've been using in your world cup days yeah the idea originated um when i was on rosignol it was a little bit different obviously a race ski is to translate what's happening on a, on a world cup race ski into a recreational ski, especially now with all the skis being quite a bit wider. You know, the race skis I'm talking about are 60, 63, 64 millimeters wide at the waist. They look like a, a toothpick relative to what we ski on now in, in the recreational world. So, you know, it, it requires a fair bit of interpretation and, and sort of engineering to figure that out. But the idea, yeah, came from from 2003. And it was it was a really kind of 
I'd thought about it a lot. I'd messed with it and experimented, but it was um, something that always stood out because it, it really had the ability to appeal to a lot of different people, a lot of different styles and specifically to variable conditions. You know, in racing, we deal with variable conditions a lot, but not not relative to a recreational skier. A recreational skier deals with a lot more. They they go in the moguls, they go in powder, they go in the trees, they go on groomers that are smooth, and then they go on groomers that are well skied on and lots of sort of loose snow and debris and balls. And that's more than we deal with in racing. And that's the keyhole was was really effective with dealing with lots of different conditions. You discovered it by cutting through uh, a couple of your uh, old skis. So if I understand it uh, correctly, you know, a ski builder had put on a pair of damping plates and somehow that cutaway uh, created a, a like a, an inflection point within the ski that helped its performance. Yeah, and and they they didn't they were just dealing with the fact that the little dampening plate was was peeling off so the glue wouldn't stick when the vibrations were were heavy it was coming off so they they did that and then they they fixed it they got better glue and they never cut another another hole to to fix that so it was a, a random uh <laughs> a random adaptation that they made that never occurred again and all the ski and we didn't know because we, we they look the same from the outside you'd never know the difference yeah. so we, I skied on those skis on Rossignols the, the next year as well and struggled. I was still trying to use my the, the couple pairs that I had. And we never really discovered what the success formula was until much later. And yeah, once I discovered it, then I, I played with lots of different ideas or ways to get the same feel. And and uh, ultimately, that's the result of that is is the peak skis. And you discovered it perhaps in the same way, you know, back in those days at Carabasset Racing Academy, but actually just cutting through the ski and <laughs> discovering what uh, the uh, adjustments had been made. Well, I, I didn't cut them. Um, I just cooked them. You just heat them up in a hot box and they peel apart. I mean, by that point, they were they were so old that, you know, they weren't useful for anything else. The edges were gone and you can't really revive them. So, yeah, I just peeled them apart. If you cut them, it's hard to sometimes tell even what's going on but if you peel them apart layer by layer you can almost always tell what's going on right i don't know how many people have ever cooked their skis probably not many of our listeners will have uh, will have done that for sure so now then that keyhole technology that's basically a cutaway in the upper layer uh, of every ski is that how it works yeah and it's it's an interesting thing because i know a lot of companies are going to try to copy it and figure it out but it, it it's a lot of different variables that all have to come together and they don't have to be perfect but they have to be within different ranges and if you mess one of them up by too much the whole thing won't work at all so it's it's kind of that's that's ski ski building in general anyway there's there's kind of different windows for each variable to be in and there's a couple hundred different variables so it's that's what makes it tricky that's why it's not as simple as as we'd hope but but yeah i think you know it's that is the 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 sort of crux of what we're doing is that if you get that right where the keyhole is is doing its job then the ski is super forgiving and really uh it helps build confidence and people are able to to jump on it and notice it right away i mean even somebody who's not not an advantage we had first timers who'd never skied before in their life and they could tell the difference between a regular ski and our ski right away. They were verbalizing um, identifiable characteristics and they'd never even been on a ski before. So, and it's, and it's the same all the way up to, you know, experts and, and big mountain skiers. So I think we, we really hit on something important and interesting and that hopefully makes it more enjoyable for everybody. So the idea is that, uh, you know, that ski is going to kind of respond to how hard you're skiing it, maybe like a, you know, mountain bike suspension or something like that. Yeah, it's it's just you're bringing the power into the middle of the ski a lot more. And that's a more natural, from a kinesthetic feedback side, it's much more natural for people because you walk on your feet all the time. And no matter if you're a great skier or a poor skier, you're used to that. That's one of the common uh, factors uh, across the board. So it doesn't matter how advanced you are. And it kind of responds that way to everybody. If you're a great skier, you, you understand that right away and you can push on it harder and in more extreme conditions and rely on it because it's right under your foot as opposed to way out by your tip, which can always be affected by lots of different things. Or And you don't get stuck on the tail either. And the tail can be dangerous for an advanced skier, but it can be really frustrating for a beginner because they constantly get get to the back seat and then the tail grips a lot and they get 
kind of stuck there. Yeah, this kind of just eliminates that. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, the, you know, the type of skis that you used to be on, you know, back in the day were pretty narrow. I mean, the range that you're offering itself, they come in at what width? The narrowest is a 78 underfoot, which would be primarily on piece, the carving ski up to an 88, then a 98, 104, and 110. That's a, that's the waist width. Yeah, they're they're kind of across the span. Besides a, maybe a true big mountain powder ski, which which would theoretically be wider than a 110, we may make the 118, uh, which we've already tested, and it's an exceptional ski. But I think the market for a one for a ski that wide is is a bit smaller. So we have to kind of focus on <laughs> what we what we know right now. But we may build that one as well this year, small run. And you've got a side country skis as well. Yeah, the the SC is the 98 and the 104, and that's just a slightly lighter lighter version of the of the regular ski and in our case because of the keyhole and because of bringing kind of the power into the middle it, it also mitigates the, the negative effect of cutting weight i mean most skis if you try to make them even marginally but especially significantly lighter you tend to lose quite a bit of performance and we've seen that in the backcountry side country skis of the last 10 years and that can be i think frustrating where you're you're really forced to choose performance or weight and in this case because the power and everything's in the middle of the ski cutting weight at the tip and tail doesn't really affect the performance at all so i would say our, our side country our sc skis are basically equal or if in some cases better performing than the regular skis and and they're quite a bit lighter and you were experimenting with side cut again you know back in those early days when you're playing with the snowboard you know the skis they obviously have a uh, you know width uh, underfoot they have a turn radius on there as well but you don't necessarily like to focus on that turn radius as such uh, yeah i mean it, it, they're much narrower at the tip and tail than a typical ski is of the same waist width so if you were to match our 104 against another ski that's also 104 under the foot or at the waist you'd have a much narrower tip on our ski and a much narrower tail which also reduces swing weight so there's just less mass out there so the ski feels a lot lighter anyway because there's less less mass out of the tip and tail. The reason is that we don't focus on it is because it, it really isn't a factor. Right now, on the out in the marketplace, radius is a huge factor as to how quickly the ski turns. If you have more radius, uh, shorter side cut, then the ski turns quicker. That's just the way it is. In our case, it's just not that because the keyhole is what's defining your radius more than anything, the re relationship, the keyhole to the to where your binding's mounted and the weight you push on it. it. It becomes irrelevant. The only time that the tip and tail are, you know, radius, if you if you will, but more rocker profile early rise is doing anything is when the whole base of the ski is in the snow. So if you're in looser snow, powder, things like that, then and the base is touching the snow, that's when that tip is really effectively changing the way you might feel the turn but and in that case our early rise and rocker if you were to measure that which they haven't come up with a, a formula of how to measure that as as cleanly as they have radius then that rocker profile and early rise does match the keyhole sort of radius if you will i mean the ski in general skis very similar to to lots of skis out there just better and more adaptable i found it also really interesting uh Bodhi, that uh, you don't have like a, a women's range of skis i think i read on the website there's no shrink it and pink it side of things you know the skis are designed to be used uh, by by everyone right yeah i mean i think we may end up coming out with some graphics that maybe appeal to women more i think our graphics are pretty they're, they're i like them but they aren't what you'd think of as a typical women's ski but yeah in my experience the skis don't they don't know whether it's a male or female that's on them maybe they do and i haven't figured out how to communicate with them correctly yet but uh, there's women who ski incredibly powerfully and, and dynamic and there's there's women who ski gentle and there's men who ski both ways as well so maybe the only you know sort of relatively consistent factor is weight typically women are a little bit lighter than men it doesn't seem to make much difference with our skis because again every all the energy and all the functionality of the ski is moved towards the center so women are able to, to power it up and, and push on it as hard as they want as just as well as men and one final question about the uh, ski then i noticed that it has another feature or all of the skis have another feature called the uh, the locate which is uh, included with the skis where you're able to track the ski down if you happen to lose it so say you were skiing like in the back country deep powder and you know unfortunately you do lose a ski it's got a like a really precise gps system for tracking it down 
down? Yeah, that's something that we we talked about. Um, I wish it happened years ago. It's not just that. I mean, if somebody takes your skis by accident or you leave them in the rack at the bottom and there's 400 pairs of skis in there, you know, just being able to easily locate where your skis are no matter what happens. It's a really practical application of technology into skis that hasn't really happened up to this point. So, you know, our main goal is to make skiing more accessible, more fun, and and more practical for everybody. I think that was a, a really nice step to put in there. Yeah, I mean, it's a great innovation. Well, you know, the whole, uh, the sound of uh, peak skis, clearly there's so much detail that you've thought about. Uh, I think e- even uh, the packaging, you know, has uh, a lot of attention has been given uh, to that as well. And, you know, one of the reasons you're over here in Europe uh, just now is that although they've been on sale uh, last winter, and you start selling in the States, you're looking to, uh, you know, expand and open it up to the European market. You're not going through re- retailers, you're selling it uh, direct to people through the website. Yeah, just peakskis.com. I think, you know, the Europeans are maybe even more accustomed to buying stuff online, direct consumer than the Americans are. But I think everybody's becoming more aware that that's a viable it's a viable path and you have direct communication and it's quicker and yeah so that we're yeah peakskis.com is where you go to check them out we have a lot of sort of videos talking through models and going into detail about what each one kind of does really well and and maybe help people make decisions which in my opinion is much better than going into a ski shop and having some young kid try to sell you on whatever they're getting getting paid that week to, to sell you you know i think the european market will respond really well to it there's obviously a lot of avid skiers over here who ski a lot of different conditions in a given day and i think that it actually probably applies even better to europe than it does to the us the the fact that we we tend to outperform everyone else on lots of different conditions not just one i'm excited to see the response my guess is it will be very good because in the europe you know, you just have a tremendous reputation, the attention that you've put into detail in terms of innovation. You know, we've discussed it, you know, during the course of this interview in terms of your training and looking at skis, etc. over the course of your career. I'm sure that they uh, will be very popular. So, yeah, enjoy uh, this weekend. I believe some new snow has fallen. So that's really good news for everyone racing there. And yeah, enjoy Solden and the rest of your time in Europe. Thanks very much for your time today, Bodhi. All right. I appreciate it. Well, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed chatting with Bodhi and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, I've put relevant links into the show notes, so take a look there if you want to go deeper into Bodhi's story. I genuinely enjoy all feedback about the show, so please tell me what you thought. Just tag us on social at Ski Podcast or email theskipodcast at gmail.com. We've had a lot of feedback since our last episode, but I'll cover this next time. Uh, In the meantime, if you do like the podcast, there are three things you can do to help. Uh, Review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, Buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast or book your ski hire with InSport Rent using the code Ski Podcast, which will save you money. Look out for the link in the show notes if you just want to make it easier. Uh, there are 189 episodes of the Ski Podcast to catch up with and 127 we listened to in the last week. We have some great content, so it makes sense to catch up with them. Just go to theskipodcast.com and have a look around. We've covered so many different topics. You'll definitely find something of interest to you. You can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at Ski Podcast. But for now, I'd like to thank Intersport for sponsoring the show and Bodie Miller for giving me his time. Finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.